Hi, welcome back to the Mom Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick, co-host is Chris Lucian, and today we have Haled Souf on the show, and we got some great topics lined up, uh, jumping into test strategy for uh, all those TDD practitioners out there like us, um, avoiding some traps uh, that can occur with mob programming, and applying domain-driven design to legacy system and code is what we got before so i'm excited to jump in before we do uh can you introduce yourself uh for us in the audience yes sure so um my name is Khaled Souf. i'm actually um let's say i call myself a globe trotro developer because i work it for many companies i lived in four countries so far and uh, i lived in france in tunisia um, and uh, and also in Canada, and then move it back to France, and then go to to Switzerland. And right now, I'm actually in Switzerland. And um, you know, I'm very passionate about subject about crafting software, about uh, TDD, about extreme programming practice, and about domain-driven design. Fantastic, fantastic. Yeah. Well, globe trotting that sounds great. And um, I guess just jumping into our first topic. Um, what has all your travels taught you about testing strategy for TDD? What are your thoughts here? Well, actually, um, let, let's say that's one of the main topics that should be discussed when somebody is using TDD, especially uh, in real life. The, the issue is like when some people try to do TDD, uh, they, they learn TDD by katas, by coding dojos, by some kind of small exercise. But when they go to a bigger scale, like real life, big, big, uh, let's say application or maybe legacy uh, application is very uh, complicated to put that, uh, you know, understanding and that new knowledge to practice. So um, in my experience, um, because also I've been coaching and mentoring multiple developers to do that in real life, one of the main struggle is actually testing strategy because before using TDD in real life, you need to create some kind of testing strategy that's going to be compatible with TDD. So it's like I'm going to, uh, one, one thing, for example, is like you need to, uh, you know, to define what is your unit test, what is a unit, how you're going to test it, how you create a faster feedback loop, and how to do to create testing, to make testing easier for developer because like you know, when you are a developer and you're trying to test something, if it is too hard, too complex to do it, at some point you're going to say, okay, I'm going to this, that, and I'm going to go, uh, you know, I'm going to do it like in what I call actually freestyling, like without test at all. So uh, this is the thing that actually need to be done and prepared before doing that. So you need to create some kind of testing strategy, some kind of hierarchical testing so you can be sure that it's going to be easier for you when you're going to start implementing features or maybe uh, fixing bugs in, in case of you are working with legacy code so that's why i i took this topic from uh, from many other topics to to discuss today oh nice so, nice yeah and I, and I think i think for me i i definitely will agree that uh when going from a kata, like a very simple TDD, like, you know, FizzBuzz kata, to jumping into some uh, existing code is a gigantic leap. So I agree with you there that, yeah, strategy becomes very important. Um, 
And I love I love that to make it easy to test, uh, to take away the friction of testing. Um, what 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 are some testing strategies, specific ones you have that help make it easy? Um, one of the things that, for example, I look into, uh, there is something that uh, that you need to to know when you are working with legacy code. Uh, legacy code is actually very, very hard to test. Why? Because actually, when you take a small piece of code and you try to test it, because of the complexity of the dependencies, it's going to be very hard to uh, to test it. So what I'm usually do, uh, if I'm in a new architecture, I'm going to use like the new, uh, let's say, the new way of do it, like uh, hexagonal architecture. One of the strategies that I use in hexagonal architecture is actually for the domain and for, uh, you know, the, um, let's say, the business layer where you have the use case services and when you have the domain object, I'm going to try to test them with as much as possible using, uh, you know, a fake strategy to fake the, the cops. And when I go, let's say, upper in the... Uh, let's say in the layers, I'm going to try to use more slow tests and more of integration tests. So th the basic thing is always, if I can fake or mock or maybe use a dummy, I'm going to try to use it. But if I found it too complex, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with, with this simplicity and make a trade-off and say, okay, are we not mock or maybe use a dummy for that part i'm gonna i'm gonna test it as it is and and that's that's the trade-off that i'm gonna make so it can be easier something else also that i use is like using outside in techniques so it's like i'm gonna start with the block that let's say uh, expose something like REST API or something, I'm going to, every time I'm going to go deeper in the layers when I'm testing. These are actually the kind of techniques I use. And usually today what I use, for example, for building an API REST, I'm going to go from the consumer side and build the test before even build the, uh, the backend side. So it's like it's a technique that that is called actually consumer driven contract testing. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, so what what kind of um, <clears throat> what kind of maybe resistance have you seen to to unit? You know. So so is this more about a, a resistance from people adopting unit testing in their production code? And if so, what have you done? Um, to i guess convince people you know or uh you know go deeper into the topic there but usually see the the resistance is uh for the tdd as as a technique itself so okay. it's like even i can i can go it, it it go even further than that so it's like the people they are not convinced about that because like like i said maybe they had less knowledge or maybe they were not mentored so it's like uh, they know only the surface level. They try to do it. They found it too hard. So they make the, 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 the conclusion that because it's too hard, so it's not applicable in, in our, let's say, uh, space. So it doesn't work. So we not do it, uh, go further. So 
usually um, what I do is like I can I work with them in their code. So it can, you know, something like pair programming or maybe ensemble pro programming when I do that for, for two reasons. The first one is actually to convince them about that so they can see that it's actually working for in real life to uh, to like give them another perspective because I don't know the project. So, so, so I'm like a new eye. I'm not actually somebody that go deeper so I can take a step back and look differently to the code than them. Most of these people, they stayed like 10 years or 15 years in the same code. So they don't have that, you know, that step back uh, look. So, so, so they need somebody to do that. I'm not like, uh, let's say I'm not in the position of teacher. I'm always when I'm speaking to them, you know, uh, I'm like them. I'm still a developer. I'm still developing. So, so that you need to make, let's say, uh, to make that clear in their minds so they understand that you are in their side and you are a human being. You can make mistakes like them. You're not somebody who is like, you know, going there and change everything. And and people usually don't like to change uh, their habits, even, even, even if they, they're interested in what happens outside of their world, they're usually uh, afraid to do that because they, they are afraid to lose something, maybe to lose control or maybe to, uh, because they, they're going to be some kind of naked to other people. So, so they, so they don't they don't like that kind of position. So you you are you are there as a coach to reassure them that you are in their side. They are not alone. You, we're gonna work together. We're gonna get through that together. We are a team. And um, and from them you from there usually it's gonna be easier and easier. And I remember usually the people that are the most resistance, they 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 do the most resistance. At the end of the, you know, of the coaching or something, they're going to be the one that leading the others to the new things. Mm. Yeah. yeah and, and I've seen that too. And it's almost like, uh, you know, it, I'm not sure if it is the satire uh, change model curve, but it feels very similar to it where um, the first dip when you enter a code base and try to do TDD, especially when you're first learning it, it's a pretty big dip. Um, and it, and it, and I think some of the things you said can really help. You're doing it with others. Um, I'm not sure if you're pairing or mobbing with them or something, but it just even being present in the team in some fashion, I think that that helps a lot. And, but I, what I've seen it, it, I think you bring up a real challenge. It's almost like, uh, what do they call that in uh, diffusion of innovation, the chasm, right? Crossing the chasm. I feel like there's a similar chasm with TDD where when the difficulty gets hot, hard, many don't don't persist through because often when i have seen people persist through they come out as champions on the other side um but uh there are many who also give up before you get through that and uh so i i really like this topic of how do we make the dip less hard <laughs> like you know he, you know huge this huge dip this huge chasm um and i i think um you mentioned one term that maybe you can define it for me, because uh, you mentioned uh, consumer-driven contract testing. Do you mind describing that a little bit more? Yeah, uh, that's actually a technique that I heard a lot from uh, one of the author of uh, 
growing object-oriented software guided by, by test. Um, and I think it's Nate Price, if I remember the name. Mm. And uh, actually, he was talking about that as an evolution of TDD. So um, I've took it, you know, like like every, let's say, TDD practitioner, I was curious about that, like a few years ago. And then I started looking to that. What are the tools? How do we use it? How is it uh, working? And I'm actually, let's say, fall in love with that technique. So how how it works actually is like, um, right now there is there is a tool that is called Pact Pact.io. Uh, you can look onto it. So the thing is, you have your uh, let's say your front end. It can be anything. It can be uh, let's say using some kind of like Angular or maybe Vue.js or any kind of stuff. And when you try to call something that is in the backend, like REST API. You're going to use some kind of, in your tests, you're going to use some kind of MOOC or you're going to use some kind of stubbing or maybe, uh, let's say, faking. So when you do that, that, let's say, MOOC going to generate some kind of contract. That kind of contract is looked like a file. So it's kind of, when I call that thing, I'm going to receive that result in that structure, in that kind of structure. And that contract, you can take it to the provider, so to the backend side, and it's going to generate tests to the provider. So you're going to validate it. And if you have like multiple, uh, let's say, consumers, you can have one provider for multiple consumers, and that provider going to validate all the contracts by generate dynamically the tests. And it's going to test all the backend as a whole, not a small piece of that. Yeah. So th that's that's actually the idea. We have a contract. I'm the consumer, so I'm providing the contract. And you're going to, as a provider, you're going to try to validate it. And that contract can be the starting point to all the implementation after that. So it's like, let's say, it, it, it's not a TDD double loop. It's like the third loop or the fourth loop or the TDD multiple loops, actually. Mm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Right on. Yeah. Thanks for that explanation. And um, yeah. And have you seen that help ease it or is it because you were, I think you brought it up because you were going up higher up the, up the, the stack. Um, okay. Gotcha. Yeah, and I guess I'll return to one dichotomy here because uh, it's been a passionate topic for me lately. Um, and this might be a contrary opinion, but I, I invite uh, the back and forth here. So I have been burned so bad by slow tests that I am almost willing to pay any cost to not make the test slow. <laughs> and so, um, and... I guess what's the trade-off for you? Like, when do you say like it's okay to have a slower test here? Um, like okay, when? So, yeah. Like, uh, what, what's your personal take on that one? <laughs> okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about a very old experience of mine when I when I started using mm -hmm. TDD. Yeah, uh, I've been in a project like eight years or nine years ago, or even ten years. I don't remember the 
a year exactly. So it's like we uh, starting using TDD, we using TDD double loop, use it, uh, you know, behavior driven development also. And at some point, when you try to to push something, they're gonna they're gonna you know run the uh, the the build pipeline, and it takes like thirteen minutes to get to get the feedback. So it's yeah. like was was actually hellish. Let's let's say it that way. So it's like in the day you can do like four or five or even you know you take you you run the build, you grab a coffee, you can talk to all your colleagues, and the build didn't finish yet. So it's like. <laughs> So the thing that I understood from that experience is actually sometimes testing and TDD, especially uh, when using TDD for uh, testing, is going to be a very good indicator that there is already an issue, but it's going to make it bigger. That's the thing. So it's like there is an issue. Maybe you don't see it right now, but it's going to make it bigger. So when you have that kind of build, I think usually you have a problem with your design. So it's like you need maybe to split to split it in multiple modules or, or maybe multiple applications. Or maybe there is some few, uh, uh, it can be a modular monolith or something. So there we go to the DDD side when we start to have some kind of bounded context, you need to split them. It can be in the same application or also it can be multiple application in the case that you're going to use like techniques like uh, architectures like microservice or even going serverless. But you can still also manage that kind of issue with, with a modular monolith. When you do that, you can make your tests, let's say, uh, run in parallel and you're going to remove that, that issue. Mm. What I'm trying to say is like sometimes when you get an issue, it's an indicator that there is a, a problem elsewhere and you you need to look onto it. Mm. Uh, it. It reminds me actually of another issue that we had and we, we've been looking and, and we've been saying that maybe there is uh, something that we need to do about it. I remember when we are using uh, behavior-driven development, and we, we we use it, uh, you know, one of the many, uh, let's say, uh, framework that you use it for testing, especially when, when you have a BDD as a specification. So at some point, you're going to need to implement it. And one of the biggest framework is actually Cucumber. And we've been using Cucumber for that. And at some point, uh, we stopped using BDD at all. Why? Because one of the person, the business person doesn't like the way that we are writing it. It's all, it was always repetitive. There is always, uh, let, let's say we, we are saying the same sentences. And every time we, we create that file, we're trying to build it together. It was like some kind of routine. And it's like some kind of machine. There is no actually reflection on that. And from that, I understand that we were only taking consideration of what us developers are saying, not actually the business are saying. So it was like, you know, it doesn't uh, actually be this means of conversation. So it's like we we missed completely the point. And sometimes <laughs> I don't find, uh, let's say that when I, when I'm working, usually when I reflect after Free, uh, few months or something that I can take a step back and say, okay, so I think we did that wrong or maybe I did that wrong. And then 
we need yeah. to do something about it next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know what you're talking about too. I've seen that before. We were actually talking about in uh, my ensemble recently, where uh, the um, there's so many nice testing frameworks, and Cucumber is one of them, where it lets you write in regular language, like plain English, with spaces and everything, like the name of your test. But yet you'll still see some tests that are like uh, test uh, function call uh, sends parameters correctly. And it's kind of like, <laughs> like that, that is not, you know, that does not capture the domain, right? And so even though, exactly. even if you have all the tools that are ready to make it capture the domain, you, you, it still takes the humans to have the conversations and capture that, right? So yeah, I totally agree. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how about maybe it's a good time to transition topics. So you mentioned, sure. you know, helping, you know, ease that uh, difficult start to TDD on a new code base and uh, being there with them and coaching them. And um, yeah, and so uh, it sounds like you've tried some ensemble programming and mob programming. And uh, what are some traps you've seen that should be avoided? <laughs> well, um, there, is, there is many ones. <laughs> 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 let, let's let, let's start with the uh, the biggest one that I found is like uh, the problem actually when you are doing ensemble programming if you don't create some kind of sp safe space for people the let's say uh, the shy one the introvert uh, the introvert one they will not participate on that as actively as the others and in the same uh, also let's say. Uh, in the same way, the loud people, they, they're going to be even louder and louder. So it's like they're going to take the whole space for themselves. So it's like um, it's a very, very big issue in my side, especially when you have when you do it without some kind of constraint, without some kind of, uh, let's say, what I say is like some kind of, you know, uh, restriction. So we can be sure that everybody is happy about that. Everybody is participating, everybody is sharing their knowledge, and also everybody is learning something. And uh, this is one of the biggest traps that, that I've seen. So it's like no, uh, let's say, no uh, restriction at all. I, I didn't find the, re the, the, the word that need to say in this case, but let's say create a safe context. That's, that's very, very important for that. For, for for people i can give you an example uh if you for example uh you don't uh you know use some kind of technique to to time box the things so the people they can switch there there is always always going to be the same person taking the keyboard and the same person also uh let's say giving instruction to 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 that to that person because you know they're passionate about that maybe they they like to do that but at some point, the other they're gonna take their cell phone and they they starting losing completely completely interest on 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 ensemble programming. Yeah, um, different behaviors. I, you know, I, I've seen different variations on that. Uh, Dependent, you know, some people might get excited, or uh, you know, maybe one person just knows a whole lot, uh, and. Um, you know, so like one one general restriction I like to lean on is, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the week, did did everyone speak a roughly equal amount of time? Um, so so that was that's you know, 
that's kind of a, a little bit of a kind of retrospective thought experiment to get people to kind of choose to do, you know, add, add, uh, constraints to their ensemble. Um, do you have any, uh, you know, any particular strategies to, to adding those restrictions and, and what, what might they be? Well, uh, one thing is actually I'm using, uh, rendery, you know, it's like, yeah. uh, switching people every five or eight minutes so you can be sure that everybody is there and also restricting the number of people they can do mobbing mm -hmm. so it's like in my opinion if it is more than five people it's going to be very complicated you're going to lose some people that's for sure mm -hmm. and uh, between three and and five and five is actually already too much in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> So, so it's like, this is one of the res two restrictions, time, uh, let's say the number of people, uh, also the way they are doing it. So it's like somebody need to share the screen. And also um, if, uh, let's say, uh, the um, navigator or the, the, let's say, the, the, the navigator, uh, the navigator is actually the one that, that is, telling people what to do, if I remember well. Um, that person shouldn't take a uh, decision without consulting the others. That's that's one of the main topic. Mm -hmm. If if you're going to take a big decision and tell the the one that, that is coding uh, to do it, he need to check with the others and he need to 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 go forth and back with, with them. So so they can tell him what to do and uh, tell him let's say try to to give him some kind of insight he shouldn't take the decision alone they, they they are five people or maybe four people or three people so nobody should take the decision alone for mm. for the whole team and um and that's actually a very uh very good thing to do uh what are the other traps uh, you can also the other traps is like uh, taking instead of doing small steps taking very big steps like taking more than 30 minutes uh you know without without any kind of um I, I always try to to get some kind of you know uh break or something like that so people can take a look back and then go back so they can see what what actually happened and are they okay with that so you need always to let's say to avoid the you know the tunnel effect you know going on everybody's like focusing on the same stuff but you need already somebody to take a step, a step back so so that's why always doing that in very very small iteration it's like between uh let's say at at most it's like 25 minutes no more than that <laughs> yeah 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 and it's uh it's a super interesting topic and uh, I think there's so much nuance and I think I really like what you said at the beginning, kind of the goal is a safe space and there are, I think there's multiple ways to get there. And um, in some cases, it'll be exactly what you said, Chris, where it is like strictly everyone is speaking almost exactly at the same time. I've also seen mobs observed where there is someone who's more of a talker but there is um, lots of space left for others. So there's lots of moments of silence. There's lots of engagement. Everyone is still weighing in. Um, and some people don't prefer to talk as much as well. Um, and so 
It's it's finding that balance, you know, so it's always the tricky thing, right? Because you don't want to over constrain it, right? Because there could be some mobs that have no constraints and the safety is very high, right? <laughs> and then, so if you add constraints to that, um, I, I could see it leading to problems. So it's, it's very context-based, right? And so- um, Exactly. Yes, exactly. And so, but I do have to agree with you. If I'm going to set up a mob and I don't know a lot about what's going on, yeah, I'm going to have a timer <laughs> and I'm going to have a small amount of people. <laughs> so I'm totally with you there. And I think the small amount of people, um, I've seen big mobs do really well. And, um, but I think it, it's, it's more challenging. And I think it's just, uh, the difficulty of a lot of people in general and communication, right? And so uh, with three people, you get the diversity, three to four people, you get the diversity of opinion, right? Going on because, you know, with four people, there'll be six opinions because I'll have at least two or three and I'll disagree with myself. But, um, and you can, you can go back and forth and complete a whole conversation loop, right? Like someone has a concern, we can walk through their concern and talk through all the details and figure it out. And then everyone else can learn around that. When it starts getting like eight, nine people, there's no way to sync everyone's understanding and walk through all their concerns, at least in a detailed level. I think like you said, you, you, you like if I find myself where I'm like, well, if I speak my mind here, um, we'll never get anything done because we'll just be discussing, taking turns, discussing every person's issue. And so I am tempted to check out more the, the higher the number. <laughs> and so... I, I agree, you know, it can work, but I agree with you, a smaller number is a, uh, a better subset. You know, any any response, either of you, to uh, some opinions there? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I typically go to the example of, um, well, I, I typically like the uh, law of personal mobility. And, you know, if you're not contributing and you're not learning, then go to a different mob or mm -hmm. uh, ensemble. And so, yeah, uh, yeah I, I think... You know, that's in the context of you have you have enough people to kind of split and have others uh, join. Um, and then also, I think if you're if you're like kind of scaling up is this growing and splitting idea. So I totally think a um, an ensemble of six people is appropriate if you're getting ready to split into two groups of three to then add more people. So. So I think in the context of like scaling a team, um, I think a, a temporary six person uh, ensemble is a really good thing to have. And I also think that in the case of um, a big unknown and a lot of like popcorning of ideas, if there's a lot of people engaged, I've seen very large ensembles happen uh, where a lot of people have the researcher role um, in in many cases researching in different directions. So I think if you have you can have as many people really as the number of, of research directions go as people are popcorning ideas. So um, you know the, the the example I lean on often for this is a, a twenty person ensemble uh, trying to work with a quantum computing API for the first time. So people researching physics and how quantum computing works and as well as, uh, the Python API, as well as the syntax for what they're trying to do. So I, I think it can scale up, but it, it shouldn't if, you know, especially with the learning and contributing. So I think in that case, everybody's kind of learning or contributing. 
the disengagement I think happens when people feel like they can't do that. Um, so, yeah. So it's like, it's very interesting what you are saying because um, I totally agree with you. One of the big ensemble uh, programming that I've seen working is actually when people, they split that kind of task. So it's like they are taking very different roles in that case, is actually working because everybody is, is actually taking uh, responsibility or accountability for what he's doing. It's like yeah. everybody is waiting for him to do something, uh, especially when they are researching. They are somebody, I remember that happened, somebody is looking for the, the, the documentation on the API. The other one is actually trying to design the architecture. And, you know, what are you doing? How, how, how is it going? What do you think? Well, I think that we should do that, that, because that, that. And it's actually like, like you said, it's like the the ideas are popping. And it, it, it's very interesting when, you know, uh, and it's very also, uh, when you see that, it's like you see uh, a company scaling, actually, because, when you scale a company, you're going to have less uh, general, let's say, profiles. You're going to have more speciali specialized profiles. So it's like, it's actually it's like uh, uh, creating a company in real life. So it's like, it, it's really interesting. I've seen that uh, multiple yeah. times. So so this is actually the case that it, it it is working very well, actually, because everybody is actually looking for something to help others. So it's like to 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 they have a common goal. We have a common goal, and we're trying to achieve it by. And everybody is thinking what I can add to the others, so we can be. Uh, it's going to be easier to to achieve that common goal. Yeah, I love it, and I don't know. I just had when you were speaking something fired in my head that I wanted to th throw at you guys because I think it's what you're talking about is you know I've always thought about lean flow efficiency from like a like an organization perspective you know like uh between teams or between people or from like a value stream map but I I don't know if I've ever thought about it internally within an ensemble right and it almost seems like uh that's what you were explaining was that uh an ensemble is doing well if there's no like queuing and waiting or waste happening inside, right? So everyone is contributing and they're not like, in a sense, you're always waiting for maybe the driver or uh, navigation. But if you can research without waiting, then you're not having the lean waste of waiting, right? Um, if uh, the communication is flowing, there's not like a transportation waste, so to speak. Um, and I, I don't know, I, it's, I mean, it's in the primitive uh you know, brainstorming for me, but I think, I think there is something to that. So if you could, you could maybe have a very large mob, but it's, uh, it's lean virtues are very high. <laughs> and if the lean virtues are not high and you're having a lot of waste, maybe that's the time to split. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, it, it, it's like, uh, it's like yeah. you said, actually, I'm going to add, add some kind of point uh, that, uh, sure. something that you say, you said before, um, when we, uh, when you say it about the constraint that sometimes you, you say that maybe it depends on the context. Actually, I totally agree with you on that because some. So what I usually do is like I'm pushing the idea with the freestyling, uh, mobbing, uh, ensemble programming, and from there I'm gonna look to the people. If I find that that everything is okay, I will not give them any constraints. 
because mm -hmm. they don't need it. So it's like any uh, organization, if there is no issue, you will not need some kind of laws, right? Mm -hmm. But if there is issues rising, so you're going to try to to regulate that. Like, like any, uh, let's say, um, country or something. So when they try to issue a law, there is always something that happened before. So that's why there is a law right now. So this is how I actually uh, see it. Sorry, you can go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's great. I, I love that. And then that's actually my, I think, I think that's my style too, I would say. Um, I usually, if it's people I don't know and I have no context, we usually start with the constraint of the timer, right? Um, but um, but you're right. I, I definitely lean towards the low direction and only add as needed. Um, but yeah. yeah. How about you, Chris? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, uh, it, it is as needed, I think. <laughs> Yeah, you're Mr. Chaos. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Me and Chris's discussion usually is if uh, we're facilitating a workshop or something, we're mobbing. It's you know, I'm like, okay, here are the constraints, and you're like, oh, just throw them in there, you know, <laughs> and they'll figure yeah. it out. Often it's like, well, I so I find like there's a lot of opportunities for just in impromptu coaching and other things like that that kind of come out of natural because I, I I think. In the past, I've seen like a lot of assumptions that I might make about what people might struggle with or not, and sometimes I'm totally wrong. And so, uh, it I think often I've seen coaching work really well, where the mistake has just happened, and then you can jump in and say like, "Oh, wasn't that painful? Let's like try a different way." Um, and so that that has been a particular big big one. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, to going back to the team size or the ensemble size thing, I've gone into like very like lethargic, uh, ensembles before. Um, and it's like, oh, Hey, like, does anybody feel like they're not learning or contributing right now? And a few people will be like, yeah. And they'll be like, this is a really good opportunity to just break away. And so, um, uh, that I think inherently, I think people don't want to be disruptive or come off as rude and so i think often it's it's like the giving the permission to split off uh you know actively from a coaching standpoint really helps because uh i, I see people want to keep the ensemble together too long uh often um when they they could split off and do something else or or, or you know go from a six to a three and three um and in that scaling example i've seen the six work really well because everybody's learning and as the learning turn tones down and as flow increases uh like a production related flow increases then you you naturally go into that okay let's split up but people feel like it's being rude to split up mm. and so uh I, I think paying attention to um you know politeness like being overly polite is actually, I think, an anti-pattern in ensemble when, you know, because we, we talk about being polite, right, and or kindness, consideration, and respect, but um, it's not kind, considerate, or respectful to to be polite to the extent that the, that the ensemble slows down its uh, um, total capacity, right? Yeah, kind and direct, yes. Yeah. <laughs> cool, we're coming up a little bit close on time, but I don't know if you wanted to get out a soundbite uh, 
on DDD, uh, domain-driven design applied to legacy stuff. So uh, what's your thoughts there? Well, <clears throat> actually, it's like uh, one of the topics that, uh, let's say, most of the people that are using domain-driven de design avoid because they, they avoid usually legacy. Why? Because there is no excitement about like creating the new knowledge. It's like some kind of archaeology, in my in my opinion. So it's like, you know, you got the big pyramid and you got a pharaoh there and you you are digging, digging, digging to to get to that, you know, to that tomb or something. Um, actually, it's like most of the people who they are working with legacy, they don't uh, care much about, uh, about the business side because they always like uh, trying to uh, to fix bugs, to uh, they, they are in the critical side. So it's like, I don't want to know about that. I need to fix my bug. I need to understand uh, the code, but I don't want to understand the, the business area. But actually, the most important thing is actually the business area. So so that's why the best thing is actually trying to applicate domain-driven design, design and legacy, because it's going to be very, very helpful, especially when you create a bug. You know that that's actually a bug and it's going to be something that they're going to be painful for uh, for people when they are using the application because you know exactly how the application should behave uh, that that's one one thing that that actually uh, domain driven design when when it is applied in legacy system going to be helpful for as as a developer the other thing also is like the, the issue with legacy system is like the lost knowledge so somebody has done that understand very well the business but at some point uh, there is a turnover in, in the company that that uh, that person is actually moved to another company or there is something else so you lose that kind of knowledge and it creates some kind of fear to to change anything on the application so these are actually the the thing that domain driven design can be very 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 helpful to to that yeah, and I think I'll throw it in there that um, that's uh, something I've been noticing quite a bit while ensembling is what domain are we leaving on the table that wasn't put into the code that's going to evaporate and disappear and it's gone. And it might even be gone tomorrow or in an hour, right? Because it's like, oh, we fixed it. Like you're saying the bug, we just fixed it. Now we understand what the problem is. We know how to fix it. And then what often it feels easy because you just like have that moment of relief, like, okay, okay, we're done. But actually, if you walk away, then you, you're, you're all that knowledge is going to evaporate <laughs> unless you capture exactly. it, right? Yeah, <laughs> into the code. Um, and so I think timing is really important as well. Like if, if the kind of refactor step to bake that in happens too late, you'll, you'll forget, <laughs> you know? And so it's good. It's good to have that tight loop with it. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I totally agree. And it almost seems like, yeah, d yeah domain-driven design feels like this pie in the sky, great for greenfield. But, you know, when you're in the weeds, it's actually very, very useful <laughs> of legacy systems. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, uh, this might be a good time to close things out. Um, so... Uh, but before we do, uh, would you like to maybe uh, share or plug anything before we close the, close the show up? Well, um, actually, there is something that I, 
Yeah. I'll add about DDD. I hope uh, we have enough time to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so um, uh, actually, the thing that happens before when I when I'm using it in legacy, it's like uh, one of the things is like you say, Dustin, is like uh, you know uh, you get that n- knowledge right now, and then at some point, poof, it's it, it evaporates. Uh, the, the the other thing also that I understood is actually when you let's say you redo your understanding of the business. Sometimes at some point, uh, you're going to have some kind of shift, like the, the, the let's say, uh, the knowledge uh, from some place to another. So it's like everybody is focusing in some part, thinking that is the main business thing, the main value of the app uh, or the legacy system. And then at some point you say, actually, it is not, is actually most of the the business uh, people or the users they are using another part one of the um, the the example that i can give is actually about slack uh, the company slack i think everybody knows knows about it so slack before creating that product they they have they 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 were a video uh, video gaming company and then they huh. created that channel as actually something that uh, you know something that is going to be supporting the video game that they are playing but actually at some point, they understood that the main value is actually in that, in that actually, you know, channel and in that Slack that we call right now. So they shifted completely their 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 business model. <laughs> wow! Wow! What a story! <laughs> yep. All right. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, so you know, thank you for the discussion, and uh, you know, to our audience, if uh, if you're uh, if you know somebody that maybe could use more information on on TDD and uh, crossing the chasm with TDD, uh, or maybe experiencing some anti patterns in ensemble programming, or uh, maybe needs more depth on domain driven design, then please share this episode with them. You know, and all, as always, like and subscribe, and uh, we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Austin, for having me. Thank you. Bye.